this week on AARP The Perfect Scam. I think this is my what I truly believe. 75% of this has been uncovered. There's still another 25% out there that I just don't know. When I saw the case and I, I saw the degree to what he was doing and the fact that he chose to victimize veterans, the, the prosecution was one of the most satisfying ones that I've participated in. Welcome back to AARP, The Perfect Scam. I'm Will Johnson, your host. I'm here with my co-host, AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador, Frank Abagnale. And we're going to talk about Bobby Thompson again, part three of this story. All right. Sounds great. A lot of this story and Bobby Thompson, who, as we learned last week, was, was caught after setting up this fake charity and then going on the run. A lot of this story, we'll find out, has to do with fingerprints and what's in the system, what's not in the system. It's pretty surprising in this day and age, almost, for someone not to have their fingerprints like in a database somewhere. I mean, I know if I go to my kid's school and volunteer, you get fingerprints these days. Well, this is true. And this is what happened with me when the FBI was chasing me. Uh, they knew I was doing all this. My fingerprints were left everywhere, but they didn't know who I really was. They, everyone described me as being 30 or older when I was probably 18 or 19. And uh, the FBI would check those fingerprints, but they realized there were no prints. And that's what I think originally raised suspicion for Joe Shea, who started to say, how could this be a 30-year-old, obviously an American male, he's not a foreigner, who's never been fingerprinted, fingerprinted for the draft, fingerprinted for a job. Uh, so that's when he started to realize maybe I'm not chasing a 30-year-old. Maybe I'm chasing somebody a lot younger than that and has never been uh, fingerprinted. So that was the exact thing that came in my case that took them a while to figure out. And fingerprint technology, I mean, I guess if anything, we just have a, a, a vast database now of a lot of people living and no longer living and, and their fingerprints. It's probably not change, though, over the years, right? You have to still have to go dust and do all that stuff, right? Yes. And the fingerprint center, which the FBI has, is in West Virginia called Seagis. And basically, um, they have the prints of everyone that's ever been fingerprinted, whether by city police, county police, where they applied for a job, background checks, etc. Uh, when you are picking fingerprints, what's difficult is it's not just as simple as getting prints because if you press down too hard, if it's not a clear print, it's hard to get a match. Right. Sometimes you might just have one print. You don't have a match to the other prints. So, But yes, most people today that would be anywhere in their uh, late 20s or so would probably have been fingerprinted for some reason along the way. And I'm always amazed when I'm watching like a, a crime show and, and they're dusting for fingerprints, which they still do, right? right. I mean, that's Absolutely. how it's done. Yeah. It still seems rather maybe archaic, but that's that's how it's done. But the, the idea that you can find one person's fingerprint on a doorknob when there might be, you know, 75 different sets of fingerprints, it, it's pretty amazing how they're able to find what right. they need. And what's even more amazing than that is that the FBI laboratory in Quantico is the DNA of all of these people. So you find just a little hair, or maybe you find something on a sweater or something of, that belonged to someone, and you can go back years later and find out and match that DNA to someone. All right, well, let's learn how the absence of fingerprints actually plays a, a big role in the identification of Captain Bobby Thompson. After being on the run for almost two years, U.S. Marshals finally caught up with Thompson at a bar in Portland, Oregon. Two years earlier, a warrant had been issued for his arrest, with charges that he set up a fake Navy veterans charity and stole close to $100 million along the way from unwitting donors. Agents had their man. What they didn't have was his true identity. His fingerprints didn't turn up a match, and he would sign documents only as Mr. X. So who was this strange man who had been photographed with presidents and politicians and who seemed to know his way around complicated legal arguments? 
A man who went on the run and lived quietly in a boarding house but had $1 million stashed away in a storage locker. And what about the millions of dollars that his fake charity raised? Where had it all gone? Pete Elliott, the U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Ohio, led the hunt for Thompson. For him, the case was only half solved. We uh, brought him back to Ohio and, um, you know, flew him back to Ohio. So we got those fingerprints back, nothing in the file. We actually set those fingerprints up to Interpol and uh, the Canadian, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to run those fingerprints. And we still got nothing back on them. It bugged me, personally. Um, you know, we've got tons of cases here and a lot of things to look at, a lot of cold cases to look at. But this is one that kind of just bugged me because one thing about Bobby Thompson, um, according to all those that knew him, he always had to be the smartest person in that room. Something about that arrogance got to Elliot, and he wasn't giving up. About uh, six months later, it was, after he was brought back here to Cuyahoga County, you know, I just started been in this a long time, and again, people are a creature of habit, so I just started Googling. I Googled things like, um, you know, military fugitives that were um, indicted but not arrested, because I always felt that Bobby Thompson was somebody that was probably in the military at some point, right? He had to be some kind of connection to the military, something that made him feel comfortable um, over the period of time, and I thought he was probably somebody that was indicted and not arrested because remember if you're arrested you can your fingerprints are put into a national system what pete elliott finds next gets his heart racing he remembers the day and the date this is on a friday afternoon it was actually on september 7th you know i found this website that was the 10 most intriguing white collar criminals by business insider and i'm looking and halfway down the page I forget what number he was, was a wanted poster of an individual named John Donald Cody. And I looked at the photographs of John Donald Cody, who was wanted since 1986 on a similar type of scam, bilking people out of money. Uh, he was also wanted for you know, questioning in connection with the uh, espionage investigation. And the photograph to the far left of Mr. John Donald Cody, the hairstyle was exactly the same to me as Bobby Thompson's. Pete keeps at it, and he finds that the details on Cody's wanted poster match up with Thompson. Height, same. Hair color and eyes, same. Approximate age and date of birth, same. He also learns that John Donald Cody had been an attorney. It's at that moment that things really start to click. Over the course of the six months since Thompson's arrest, Pete Elliott stayed in touch with Celia Moore, the woman who owned the boarding house where Thompson had been living. One morning my phone rang and this guy said, hi, this is Pete Elliott, I'm head of the U.S. Marshal Service in the Northern District of Ohio. Would you talk with me about this Don Morset you've had there? And I said, sure, what do you want to know? And d does he have a college degree? Do you think he's smart? Do you not? Do you think he's stupid? I said, no, I thought he was smart and I thought he was educated. And he seemed to know a little bit of other foreign languages. He just kept asking all these strange questions and I would answer them. And one day, and he'd hang up, he'd have to go, you know, he'd have a meeting or something and he'd say, I'll call you back later. And then he'd call the next day. And we kept doing this day after day after day. Now with Cody's photograph in front of him, those conversations start to fall into place. And one of the things she said to me, um, was that, you know, she felt he had some kind of law experience because he knew right where to run to the computer after an argument one time and, and find that uh, law. And 
you know, here, Mr. John Donald Cody was at the top of his Harvard Law School class and an attorney. Um, and another thing that stuck out to me, when I asked the landlady, I said to her, Does he wear glasses? No. Well, he wears cheaters. Oh, okay. And I said, but funny you should ask that. And he told me later, the police love it when they're interviewing someone who is then thinking about what they're asking and comes up with something out of left field like I did. Because I said, funny you should ask that. Because when he left, he left behind two bottles of unopened eye drops. And, oh, did he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says, you still got them? Yeah, I got them. Oh, that's interesting. Now, why is that important? Uh, because on the wanted photograph of John Donald Cody, it says Cody reportedly does not have tear glands and uses eye drops constantly. He would pull out eye drops and be pouring them into his eyes and said, when I was in the military, they did medical testing on me and they burned out my, um, the du- my tear ducts. And he would have this stuff running down his face. Bingo. All good. All really good. When I when I said he left behind the tear the 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 visine, he that was that was the 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 moment that he knew he had found his guy. That one little that one little thing. He told me later. He said he got up from his desk and he did a dance. Then I can remember I took the you know found some more photographs online of of John Donald Cody. Um, and just looked at the pictures of those in his military uniform, and he was former military intelligence, so connection to the military, um, and so on. So all good. Next step, we needed to find fingerprints. John Donald Cody's case went back decades, but investigators in D.C. were still on the hunt. Elliot doesn't waste any time reaching out to them. They said, hey, look, maybe it's nothing. It could be something. We've got this guy. We haven't been able to identify him. Um, you know, you guys have this case on a John Donald Cody, and they're like, well, we think we're following him now in the Philippines, and we're right behind him. We think he got married to somebody over there. You know, uh, and I'm like, all right, well, if that's the case, no problem. Uh, can you do me a favor? Is there any possibility that you guys have any fingerprints whatsoever? And the agent, I can still remember, was this young, dedicated agent, and he was out there, right, he was off that day and uh, ran to his office and got the pair of fingerprints and was able to email those to me and send those to me. Um, and prior to doing that, I had a Kiowa County deputy sheriff who's a fingerprint examiner sitting in my office waiting for those fingerprints to come. He matched John Donald Cody's fingerprints to Bobby Thompson saying they're one and the same. Now that's good, but I like to double check and triple check everything. Uh, so I have a, a, I have a locally, I have a national expert in fingerprints that uh, was retired from a police department here. I was able to get those fingerprints also to him, and he comes back and says, yes, they are one and the same. So two for two, I figured I might as well go three for three and have those fingerprints uh, sent over the national uh, FBI database, and they matched them up to John Donald Cody and Bobby Thompson being one and the same. Elliot has his proof. He takes it right away to the county jail where Bobby Thompson is being held. Walked over to him, he was in Cuyahoga County Jail. Had his back turned to me, and remember, uh, Bobby Thompson always had to be the smartest man in the room, or smartest person in the room. 
so he did his back turn to me, and I was with a couple other officers, and I walked over, and I had that wanted flyer that, you know, was able to get uh, basically off the Internet at that time, and I threw the wanted poster in front of Bobby Thompson and said, Mr. Cody, your time is up. Um, and he just very casually nodded his head back and forth very carefully. At that point, I think he knew that he was not the smartest person in that room that we were. Pete Elliott and his team and other law enforcement agencies stood before the press and proudly announced Thompson's real identity. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, you know, deja vu. Five months ago, we stood in the same office talking about the arrest of Bobby Thompson five months ago today. Much has developed within the last 72 hours. Bobby Thompson is wanted fugitive, John Donald Cody. Elliot has his man. The old wanted poster and charges were federal charges, having to do with theft of materials in Arizona in the mid-1980s. But the details of Cody's life are astonishing. Brad Tomorrow with the U.S. Attorney's Office is eventually the lead prosecutor in Thompson's trial. He had graduated from University of Virginia undergraduate. He went to Harvard Law School. He had joined the Army. Uh, he was in, and before he took off, he was in the Army in, uh, in Arizona, in the Reserves. Served in the U.S. Army as a captain of military intelligence. Uh, he traveled the world and spoke a number of different languages. He had been passed over. I think what his spiral downhill started when he got passed over for promotion from captain to major. Uh, he got passed over a second time, and then they uh, they discharged him. I mean, you don't get you you don't get promoted in the reserves uh, after a second time. Then you get discharged. And the fact that he got passed over and couldn't get promoted, and he couldn't understand why that wasn't it. And it, it, I think that, and that's my own personal opinion, is that I think that 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 that, uh, that put him on the downward spiral. Things started getting out of control. Jody Andes, the Ohio investigator who chased the stolen money early on in the investigation, is still digging into Thompson's life to this day. He lived an unremarkable childhood, really. I mean, he grew up in a middle-class family in New Jersey. His mom was a bookkeeper. Um, his father worked on, uh, was a bank clerk. His high school friends never, never thought that this would happen. He was a quiet, he was studious, he was kind of like the teacher's pet. Um, he had a little prankster side, but he was smart enough where he wouldn't get caught. So if he might, he might convince you to do something and you were the one who would get um, in trouble with the teacher, but not him. Um, so a lot of his classmates were shocked. Whatever led John Donald Cody to the dark side, it was clear he had pretty much disappeared the first time after getting a felony charge in the mid-80s. But he eventually re-emerged as Captain Bobby Thompson, and he wasn't afraid to flaunt it. I've never seen anybody hide in plain sight like this with the President of the United States and with top-level politicians. Either he wasn't afraid or he didn't care, um, but there was something there because he is literally hiding in plain sight. A trial date was set and Brad Tomorrow would serve as lead attorney for the state, but Cody was prepared for a fight. He wanted to go to prison and probably go to prison for the rest of his life and die in prison without anybody knowing his true identity. He was he was staunchly opposed to admitting that he was John Donald Cody. As the trial goes on and weeks go by, 
Cody starts to show signs of breaking down. If, if you look at photographs of him during the trial, you know, you see a progression where he looks, he starts looking progressively worse as things are going along. He started that trial thinking, you know, he, he did not see it as a slam dunk. He had his theory that he was a super spy for the CIA and that uh, he was going to, and that, that somehow that was going to be relevant to the, to the trial. Um, and he was, he was just confident. I mean, and, and when you talk to people that knew him back in Arizona, like the judge, that's the way he is. He just thinks that he's smarter than everybody. And he thinks he knows more than everybody, and that includes the judge, the other opposing counsel, and anybody else in the room. That's just the way he is. And as the case went on and the evidence started mounting, it, the realization started to dawn on him that he was not going to win. And then he started looking for different things to try to get a mistrial. He would, he would try to pull some kind of annex. One time he came out, hair was all askew. He, came, he looked like he'd just come out after a week-long bender. What he was looking to do was he was looking to present himself in front of the jury like that, and then, you know, oh, well, geez, judge, mistrial, because the jury is going to think, you know, something bad because of the way they saw me. Unfortunately, when he did that, the jury wasn't in the room. He didn't know that. He came walking out. And when he came walking out, there's all kinds of photographs of it, the judge immediately lectured him, told him to get back in the, you know, had the deputies take him back. He had to, you know, straighten himself up and come back out, and he better not do that again. With Cody's antics and the courtroom packed with press, the trial seemed a bit like a circus at times. He was trying to make it that. As the trial continues, a string of people take the witness stand for the prosecution, including Jeff Testerman, the newspaper reporter from Florida, who wrote the article that exposed Thompson's crimes. I uh, testified for about two or two and a half hours. I I believe I was the first witness up on the stand. Also taking the stand, the lawyer who turned her client in, the USNVA's general counsel, Helen McMurray. What was that like being in that trial, that room with him? You're you're a lawyer, so you're, you're used to that setting. So I kept trying to make eye contact with him. And it was just comical how he, I mean, I was up there for a really long time. And only once, and that was inadvertent, did he and I make eye contact. And uh, that was very satisfying for me. I wanted him to know that uh, I was glad I was there. After more than six weeks, the jury comes back with guilty verdicts. And Cody's fate is in the hands of a judge. And it was a difficult thing. I mean, there was multiple charges with multiple uh uh, sentencing ranges in there. Well, the man accused of creating a phony veterans charity and pocketing millions is now on his way to prison. A judge in Cleveland hands down a prison sentence to a Harvard Law grad who used a bogus charity to cheat veterans out of millions. The final result was 28 years. Uh, on appeal, they reversed one set of charges. His sentence only went from 28 years to 27. I believe he was 66 when he went in. So I felt that, you know, you, you can always get longer, but realistically, I think that that's, that's an adequate sentence in this instance for him. But the mystery of the money, that $100 million of donations that Thompson raised for his fake charity, remained and remains to this day. Of the $100 million that was collected nationwide, uh, that's all we've ever been able to really recover was the one suitcase that was found with a million dollars in it. He was very smart in how he did this. He didn't dirty, if you want to say, he didn't dirty his hands trying to collect the money. He hired professional fundraisers to do it. Well, when you hire professional fundraisers, they charge a fee to collect the money, and a large chunk of the money went to them. But then there's still a, a, a 
ton of money that would have been collected by him or would have been paid to him, put in the bank accounts. It just disappeared. And to this day, nobody knows where that money is or what, what basically happened to it. He's the only one that's going to know the answer to that question. He's not going to tell anybody. Uh, you know, it was just fortunate that we did recover the almost a million dollars, and that was distributed at the end of the prosecution to the uh, to the veterans uh, organizations that rightfully should have got the money to begin with. Investigative reporter Jeff Testerman is still wondering what happened to the money. You know, we, we developed three theories back uh, when we were first uh, researching this. and I, The first theory was this guy's just a lone wolf that's out there trying to survive. He might be a fugitive on the run for something. And our second theory was that he was just a front man for the telemarketers that was uh, creating uh, window dressing uh, so that the telemarketers could bring in a lot of money, most of which they'd keep. And our third theory was that he was part of a, uh, when we began to see uh, his political contributions and his connections and standing with the president and that sort of thing, we began to see a third theory, which was that uh, maybe he's part of some dark uh, money uh, right-wing uh, political conspiracy. And honestly, to this day, there are elements of all three of those theories that attach to him. Uh, I, I, I think I lean, uh, I, I'm, I'm more one in three, uh, to tell you the truth. I, he's more a lone wolf that's out doing what he wants to do that, uh, for, for some reason, went on the run uh, as a lawyer when he stole some money from clients uh, back in 1984 and disappeared. Uh, but then uh, he, he came to Tampa, set up uh, this uh, grand illusion of a charity, and it became very, very politically connected. And then uh, he will tell you to this day, uh, with the writings he's doing out of prison, that, uh, you know, I was working for the CIA. I was part of a... Uh, an operation that, uh, uh, in truth, laundered money from the public uh, uh, to help fight the war on terror. And with his background in intelligence and with his connection to the CIA, you can't completely dismiss that theory. I think part of uh, the charm and the fascination with John Cody and Bobby Thompson is nobody but him to this day knows exactly who he is or why he did what he did. The case still bugs a lot of people. The amount of money that was taken, the fact that it's missing, and for Celia Moore, John Donald Cody's landlady in Portland, Oregon, it's the fundraising angle that bugs her the most. He used hired telephone solicitors, and they got, in some cases, my understanding is they got 90% on the dollar. What those callers were doing was entirely legal. But it was it was just morally bankrupt. The fact that he used a legitimate fundraising tool and separated himself from that tool was amazing. I mean, uh, th that he was able and, you know, again, the professional fundraisers take a large chunk of money for their services. Uh, but he didn't care about that because it wasn't his money. He, it wasn't going to go to any kind of charity in his mind. It was going to him. Another fact that emerged, other than these legit fundraisers, Cody was the only person running the whole operation. There was no real person other than him. Everybody else was a, either a fictitious person where he used combination of names or he actually dug up names from uh, from individuals. And we don't, you know, how he got those names. Uh, we found 
job applications that he had. We found uh, ID materials that he had that he accumulated, and he just started using – he'd use that person's name. He'd use some personal identification information from that. He'd make the name up and attach other people's personal identification information to it. He was very detailed in how he, he created a whole world. Today, John Donald Cody is sitting in jail, still filing appeals, and there's still a lot we don't know about him. His childhood, his upbringing, like the missing money, perhaps only John Donald Cody knows. What we do know is that he had a sister, an attorney, living in New York at the time of the trial. He has a sister, and I think she's still alive. I'm not sure she wouldn't tell the police anything. Yeah. He refused to cooperate, period. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, is one of uh, the only things, he had very few possessions in that, uh, in that, property that uh, he was renting out in the Portland, Oregon area, but one of the things he had there was the um, movie Catch Me If You Can. So he probably liked that whole world, thinking nobody was ever going to be be able to catch him, um, is my guess. He kind of probably fancied himself as being the guy that could never be caught. He just, uh, again, had to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. Uh, But he wasn't going to do that against us. Thompson, or John Donald Cody, isn't talking much to people on the outside these days. But one person he has let in is Jody Andes. She's the former newspaper reporter turned Ohio State investigator who was pulled into the case as U.S. Marshals were on the hunt. You are also in the process now or have recently spent time talking to him in person? Is that right? For about the past year, I've been visiting him in prison. Um, I will see him again later this week. So it's something I do on a monthly basis. Can you describe what it's like going to see him maybe that first time and then we can move into going more recently? But over a period of time, you've been, been going to see him behind bars. I really wasn't sure what to expect the first time. He comes out and he is much thinner than you've seen in any pictures. And he his limp has gotten a lot worse. And um, he comes over, he's very cordial at first, um, and he's very guarded. Uh, but He's very chatty um, on things he wants to talk about. It's hard to just direct him to keep him on the topic that, you know, of, in, of my interest. Sitting down in a loud, packed room with other inmates and visitors, Jody spends over two hours talking to Thompson on each visit. I don't have any kind of emotion for him or against him. Ultimately, I would just like to get to the bottom of the story. If you got to the bottom of the story, what are your inclinations of what that might look like or be? There are several different things that I wanted to to find out. One, where did the money go? That was part of my goal of trying to determine where the money went. And so some of it is I can account for and some I think is still out there. There's a couple theories that investigators have that I have run past Bobby and gotten some very interesting answers. Um, and um, he, he he always holds back a little, but I think that I think that there is more money that's out there, and perhaps people have even found some of it already and just haven't come forward. And I'm back with AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador Frank Abagnale. All right, Frank. So we we finally 
have Bobby Thompson behind bars. We heard from Jody Andes there at the end, who is one of the few people who is talking to Thompson or John Donald Cody, I should say, at this point, regularly and meeting with him uh, in, in prison. And actually, after we spoke with Jody, she sent us an email and she met with with Cody, and he had a question for you. So I, I'm going to tell you what, what he asked. His question is, did you ever get put in the position where you had to fly or help fly a plane? So I don't know if we're in the position of regularly taking questions from, from scammers and fraudsters, uh, but I thought we should ask. Well, the answer, the short answer is no. But you have to understand that even though I was so young, I was very smart that, for example, though I impersonated a Pan Am pilot, I never boarded a Pan Am plane because I knew there would come to the point where someone would say, well, you know, I'm based in San Francisco. I've been out there 16 years. How come I never met you before? Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like uh, my ID card. So I purposely, in everything I did and in every impersonation, I made sure that I wouldn't put myself in a position uh, like that. The closest I came, you know, I would board these planes and end up riding sometimes in the jump seat. Many times a flight attendant would come back and they'd tell me there was a seat open in coach and I'd go back and sit there because it was much more comfortable. The closest I ever came was I was on a BOAC flight, which is now British Airways, and they were flying over 35,000 feet. And when the captain got up to go back and use the restroom, back in those days, the flight engineer and the co-pilot had to go on oxygen. They didn't like to because it was a big mask you had to put over. So if you had a jump seat pilot, you would normally say to the jump seat pilot, you take my seat. And they'd slip into the seat and just sit there. So when the captain, and that was the only one time turned to me and said, go ahead and take my seat. I did, but I knew the co-pilot was sitting next to me. The flight engineer who was a licensed pilot was behind me. Um, so what, what were you thinking? I, mean, were you I was thinking one thing. I was terrified. You had a lot but of was, people that were right. trusting you. I was thinking one thing, and that was if the co-pilot had said to me, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to go back and get a cup of coffee too. I was going to say, hey, I need to tell you a story about this kid who got a uniform and a phony ID. I was ready to confess the whole thing right there. Yeah, nothing. But that's the closest that ever came to ever doing anything like that. But you did have to learn a fair amount about flying planes, right? You did your research. I did my research. Plus, you know, it's kind of like watching when you watched your dad drive a car. It was me watching every day, sitting there with these pilots, hearing all the jargon, hearing what they were doing, what the stuff was that I learned a lot about rate of fuel, rate of take, take speed to take off, all that kind of stuff so that I could answer those questions that if I was ever questioned about it. So I picked up a lot of that. Either as a pilot or when you were making off to be a doctor, do you remember a specific question? That, that, I mean, I guess you were probably pretty good at like dodging questions, but like one that really threw you, didn't know the answer to or what you would do if not a specific question? Yeah, I mean, when you live a, a chameleon existence, you basically learn to be, to be able to handle those questions. And you also learn that when, you know, someone can ask you a question and say, hey, do you know uh, Robert Johnson down at uh, TWA? And the first time they get that question, yeah, I know Robert. I uh, met Robert a few times. Then the next, well, you also know by the time you're getting the second in qu question or the third question, you know that they're starting to test you. So there may not be somebody by that real right, name. Right, that's like an old trick, it. right? Right. Yeah. Old, so you you learn to know, is this a legitimate question or is now this person actually checking me? And then that's where you would go, no, I don't know that person. I never met him. Well, it has been quite a saga to hear about Captain Bobby Thompson, a.k.a. John Donald Cody, 
Frank, as always, thanks for your, your feedback, your stories, your thoughts. Any charity that you're going to give money to, please check them out either with the Better Business Bureau, call the Fraud Watch Network, or call the Attorney General's office in your state and consumer uh, agents that are there will basically be able to tell you if that's a legitimate charity, if they've had complaints against that charity. Uh, so you can make a good decision, do I want to give money to this charity? I don't want people to stop giving money. I just want people to be careful about who they give money to. And if you have donated to a charity, is there any recourse, like, you know, if you've given money? If it turns out to be fraudulent, you can file a complaint with the attorney general's office. And again, they're the one law enforcement agency actually goes out and pursues those and goes after those charities to try and get their people's money back. As always, thanks to my team of scam busters, producers Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, our audio engineer Julio Gonzalez, and of course, my co-host Frank Abagnale. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you or someone you know has been the victim of a fraud or scam, call AARP's Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit AmeriCorps.gov slash your moment today.